0: What does Motion sound like? With Kizikans free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of Motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com/socks. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books in Drugs, Addiction and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books network. I'm Emily Dufton, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Judith Grizell about her new book, Never Enough, the Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, which was released earlier this year by Doubleday. Grizel is an internationally recognized behavioral neuro- neuroscientist and professor of psychology at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. Never Enough is her first book. Dr. Judith Grizel, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So before we discuss Never Enough, I wonder if you could begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, I grew up in New Jersey and um, always was interested in biology, I, I guess. I was also interested um, in changing my thoughts and feelings. So I um, started using drugs at an early age, around 13 and did so for about 10 years with um, real uh, interest and vigor, I guess. So as a result of that kind of vast um, experience, I ended up homeless, and um, I'd been kicked out of three schools. I contracted hepatitis C. Hmm. Um, I didn't like myself, and no one else seemed to like me either. By the time I was 23... So um, at that point I heard about addiction and um, as a brain disease, I learned that in treatment and I thought, well, diseases can be cured. Surely if I fix this problem, then I'll be able to use. So um, I started uh, the long process of getting educated and I became a behavioral neuroscientist. I went to uh University of Colorado for my PhD. It took me seven years to get my bachelor's, actually, seven for my PhD, and then another three years doing a postdoc. And so at that point, I had been sober, you know, maybe 10 years, and it was slowly dawning on me that I wasn't fixing much. But I um, did uh, get a job as a professor. First, I was... Um, well, a few other schools, but I came to Bucknell about eight years ago, and um, I teach biopsychology and psychopharmacology and behavior genetics to undergraduate students, and I write uh, research papers and, you know, live a life, I guess.
0: That's extraordinary. I, that's what I think made Never Enough so particularly compelling to me, because it's not just a discussion from a neuroscientist who has been trained uh, in in how to really understand this, of of how our brains are affected by drugs. But it's also this deeply personal story about your own experience with substance misuse, including a particularly harrowing story about an experience you had in a cheap motel in South Florida in your early 20s, if I got that Mm -hmm. correct, and what you called your life or death choice. What happened there and how did it inspire you to write Never Enough? Well, um, yeah,
1: that was a that was a really a terrible time for me. I um, had been injecting cocaine and amphetamine, methamphetamine, for a couple of years at the time. This was in the mid '80s, so I wasn't really given the opportunity to inject opiates, which I thank uh, the universe for now. But <laughs> um, at the you know, because I think you can go kind of longer in a different way with stimulants. But these stimulants were around. Um, I was kind of a two-bit user. I would, you know, affiliate with people who were maybe a little bigger, but I was doing a, um, a deal, I can remember, and ended up getting this big bag by mistake. It was in the dark, it was behind a restaurant, and the dealer just handed me the wrong bag, and I was supposed to send the bag actually, or bring the bag to someplace in Ohio, but Uh, Because at that point, I didn't have much money or resources. But anyhow, I did have this giant bag of Coke. And uh, (laughs) so I was homeless at the time. And my friend and I got a um, hotel room at the Trotter's Inn. I think it's defunct now. It probably didn't last too much longer after I left. But it was one of these dumb places on the beach, you know, with lots of cockroaches and people like me. (laughs) Anyhow... um, we got pretty into it for a few days until the bag was gone or nearly gone. And my friend, Steve, said, uh, you know, there's not enough cocaine for us. and um, Or there never will be enough cocaine for us. And I, I was so sort of strung out, you know, grinding my teeth and feeling sort of sick and crazy at the same time. Um, And I I knew what he was saying was accurate. It just seemed totally irrelevant to me. Like, Mm. what is your point? You know, so that doesn't mean we don't keep in this, you know, banging our heads against this brick wall. Um, But he somehow, um, and I'm sorry, uh, you know, we can't interview him. He died. (laughs) Mm. Uh, He died with a needle in his arm about 20 years later. But we both ended up getting clean as a result of his insight. And um, it it really wasn't my idea. But a few months later, I had the opportunity to go to treatment. And um, I think it saved my life because we more or less stopped using needles at that point. Uh, Kind of, you know, had... uh, It's just become so clear that you're driving around a dead end, you know, that no matter how hard you step on the pedal, you're not getting out of that corner. And so that's sort of what happened when he made that comment and that observation. And then, you know, how it came to be the book is sort of um, surprising even to me because I kind of put that out of my head. I, Hmm. I was barely in touch with him. I did talk to him one or two times. Throughout out a recovery, he in Texas, and I was in various places. And um, I heard, you know, a couple times that he relapsed a couple times he was doing well. But um, I was not solving addiction myself, I was publishing papers and doing my work and teaching my classes. And really out of the blue, kind of one day had the idea fall into my head to write this book. And I'm not so much a um, a book writer, you know, uh, I, it's, it seemed like a tall order, little research papers, five or 10 pages I can eke out with some graphs, but um, <laughs> you know, a book seemed like it would take a long time and I'm not the most patient person, but the, even the title was with it. And so the title and the table of contents, I wrote it on a yellow pad and I thought, well, that's weird. I put it up on a shelf. And then it was a couple of years later, I think, I was looking for an excuse to take a sabbatical in Italy, really. Mm. um, (laughs) As someone who has a lab in the basement of a biology building, usually, you know, I don't get much opportunity to go to Italy. So I thought, well, I know, I'll write the book. I can do it over there. And I had to make an argument, of course, to my dean that he would buy. So I, I somehow managed to do that. And once I was there, of course, I had to write the book or at least start it. And it it actually it's funny. I I took most of a year to write five long chapters. And then when the editor got a hold of it, she said, Well, that's good, but can you turn that into one? Oh no. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> she said, It's just so much science. Um, so I think I turned it into two, but uh um Anyway, it,
0: it kind of it took it was a long process, Emily. But that's extraordinary. So never enough was actually born in Italy. Wow. <laughs>
1: so born in Deerfield Beach and then uh, and then birthed in Italy. Or you know, you're right, conceived in Deerfield Beach and birthed in Italy.
0: And yeah. birthed in Italy. That's extraordinary. It's good to know that uh addiction truly is international. Uh and and actually as you put it, the problem of addiction today is epidemic and catastrophic. It touches nearly everyone. It's impossible to read the newspaper or listen to uh, the radio and not hear stories about the opioid crisis or or, uh, the overdose crisis. And your book shows why exactly the brain is so good at perpetuating addiction. But before we get into specifics, can you tell us exactly what addiction is?
1: Well, I don't know if I can tell you exactly, and I can't because uh, science can't. The mm-hmm. definition is kind of a changing; is changing all the time. For me, the definition is that the costs of using uh, what it takes from me it are bigger than what it gives, and that is a, a sort of a subtle turn. So initially, drugs are providing. Um, relief and pleasure and fun and comfort and maybe even um, camaraderie, you know, making it easier to dance or enjoy life. I mean, they really enhance our lives. But the more we use, the, um, the more likely it is that they go from enhancing or benefiting to um, taking. And that's hard to see when it's happening, but I think that when it happens, then there is an addiction. Now, it's, we, we um, sort of mark it by tolerance, which means that the same amount of drug doesn't work as well, so we have to take more to get the same effect. And dependence, which is um, where when the drug isn't around, there's a withdrawal state. And every drug, even the first time you use a drug, produces some withdrawal because hmm. of uh, how the brain works. So, you know, a hangover is a little bit of withdrawal, or, um, you know, the the little bit of craving and frustration after a cigarette, you know, that is sometimes is barely noticeable, but the more you use, the more noticeable it gets. So we have tolerance, dependence, or withdrawal, and then craving, which comes from kind of dependence across time and knowing that the way out of this uncomfortable state is to pick up, you know, to get the drug again. Um, And then there's denial, Mm. which is why I think it's so lethal and so persistent. I mean, that we're in this epidemic, as you say, right now, but really we've been in this epidemic for, as you know, longer than I've been alive. Certainly, uh, you know, since industrial times, I guess, there's just many, many people who self-destruct and we're certainly not getting any better. Mm. Um, So I think, you know, it has to cost us and we, and we don't see it. And I think um, those five criteria are sort of summarized in the, in the idea that it's taking more than it gives. But unfortunately, the fact that there's no blood test or no MRI um, signature that we can use to Decide who's an addict or not makes it, um, I think, really sneaky. And Hmm. so that's partly, I think, contributing to the epidemic.
0: Absolutely. It also seems to last a long time. Addiction seems to last a long time. Uh, You wrote in your book that even after giving up intoxicants, it still took you a full year to stop missing alcohol and nine years until you stopped missing marijuana. So it seems that psychologically, emotionally, and neurologically, drugs made changes in your brain that lasted a very long time. Um, So we've talked a little bit about some of the emotional reasons that drove your addiction, but can you tell us a little bit about exactly what happens in the brain when a person takes a drug? Sure. Um, Every
1: addictive drug is an addictive drug because it activates a small group of neurons going from the top of your brain stem kind of uh, i don't know like at the very top uh back of your head um about the size of a golf ball or maybe less to um just behind your eyes and that's called the mesolimbic pathway and this this is not that many nerve cells or neurons, but they um, release dopamine from the brainstem area to the limbic area in the sort of middle of the brain, middle of the front of the brain. And dopamine release there is responsible for the feeling we have of, oh, that's great. "ooh, that, I like that. That feels mm. good. Mm. You know, kind of like the feeling you get from sexual foreplay or delicious chocolate or every addictive drug. In fact, if you, if you were walking down the street today and found some bottle of something laying around, we could determine whether or not it was potentially addictive, um, by seeing whether dopamine was released in this limbic area called the nucleus accumbens. So every, every drug does that. And, um, That's why we kind of go back for more because, oh, that feels good. Now, for some people, it feels even better than for others. So some people maybe have a little deficit in that pleasure pathway to begin with. And so these drugs are especially wonderful. Um, But either way, if you activate the pathway a lot and for addictive drugs, we can they're different from natural reinforcers like sex and food because we can control the dose and the timing. So we can do as much as we want when we want. And so there's a tendency to kind of keep pushing on the pedal just, you know, over and over and over again. And, um, whether that's daily or multiple times a day or every Thursday and Friday night or whatever it is, the more often we do it, the more the brain kind of, um, adapts to that by becoming deaf to pleasure. Hmm. So, um, it's kind of like listening to music a little bit too loud. If you if you keep doing that, you have to your ears get insensitive and you have to turn it up each time and then your ears get more insensitive and you have to keep turning it up. So pretty soon you're blaring the music and you can't hear a thing. And I think that's the situation for most drug addicts where they're taking it only because not having it, you know, the deafening silence is way uncomfortable and painful, but getting the drug maybe makes them Uh, have some experience of normalcy. So it's really a a kind of a dead end experience because the brain adapts to every single drug that changes the way it um, acts and it adapts in such a way that it produces the opposite effect.
0: Right. I think that's so fascinating. Uh, And is that what you're talking about uh, when you write about the three laws of psychopharmacology? Uh, cause I, I think what you're saying in the book, if I get this right, you're sort of arguing that the brain isn't just a passive recipient to drug use, but instead it actually engages in a, a bi-directional relationship with drugs. It's really responding to their effects. Um, your laws sounded to me a bit like Isaac Newton, right? What goes up must exactly. come down. Uh, so could you explain your three laws of psychopharmacology and talk about how you came up with them?
1: Yeah. Your summary, by the way, was excellent there. Um, so the well, thank first you. <laughs> law, I'm sure I learned this in a psychopharmacology textbook, and I've been teaching the class for a while. So the first law is that um, drugs don't do anything new. They only change the rate of what's already going on. So what nic- do you mean by that? Well, so nicotine... Um, mimics acetylcholine at a particular kind of protein receptor to produce a particular effect. And that's an effect that acetylcholine is usually doing, but nicotine does it even better. Maybe a Hmm. more familiar example is that um, we all have heard of endorphins. And endorphins are endogenous morphine-like compounds. And we have dozens of those in our brain. And uh, morphine and heroin and fentanyl and oxycontin are all mimicking endorphins. And the reason they work is because they do what endorphins do, but they do it better because we can control the dose and the timing. Um, Even alcohol, which um, is not mimicking a natural alcohol per se, but it's only working because it affects the brain activity that's already happening. So Mm. if if, uh, we're sensitive to drugs, because they interact with these Um, already present biological substrates that are going about their own business. So um, we need endorphins to help us deal with stress and pain, and uh, they do make it more likely we can survive And because we're better able to cope. Well, we like that coping so much, and we can find it now in a bottle so we can really deal with our stress and our pain Mm. by completely getting rid of it. But that um, isn't uh, what the brain. You know, the brain adapts to drugs of abuse, but the brain adapts to everything. And I loved the way you described it as bidirectional, because it, it's it's kind of most glorious feature. I think. I mean, the heart is nice, and even the liver is pretty darn interesting, but the brain's <laughs> unique. Because it is such a uh, communicator, and it adapts, and it takes information in, and it—it's better than the best computer. You know, I mean, maybe soon we'll have computers even better. But uh, up until this point in history, the brain is the um, most profoundly uh, capable organ for um, change and for prediction. And for ad- adaption. And so um, one of the things, uh, so in addition to adapting, the brain is helping us by telling us what's going on. You know, if something important happens, especially if it's, it's important and it's good for us or it's bad for us, like, you know, you meet the love of your life or you have a terrific idea or there's a hurricane bearing down or, you know, you have to get out of something's way. Um, That kind of information is only possible for the brain to perceive if it has a kind of a, um, a nascent state of openness. So it can detect these inputs against a sort of a blank background. And that blank background is our normal neutral feeling state. Like Right now, I just feel okay, like I usually feel when nothing great or terrible is happening. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, it's the same for you. Well, when I take opiates, for instance, I've kind of told my brain something wonderful is happening in spades, and it's not stopping. It's just happening, 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 you know, for hours while I'm not out here. That <laughs> is um, That would prevent the brain from detecting life-threatening or... um really critical information. So what it does is to a, to a persistent stimulation, it counteracts it. And it, it does that because it's necessary for our survival. So that's
0: extraordinary. Yeah. You, when the brain is adapting to all of these drugs that affect it, uh, you write that it essentially counteracts the drug's mm-hmm. effect. Uh, you write about these processes in, in this very easy way to remember, which I appreciated, which was the A process and the B process of drug use. What what do, what do does that mean? And how do these processes work?
1: Yeah, great question. So that's really the heart of the book. Um, I'm glad it was understandable because that's what started to write uh, five books chapters and came down to one or two. But <laughs> the A process is the what the drug does to the brain. So nicotine interacts with acetylcholine receptors to um, cause certain kinds of um, neurotransmission. And heroin interacts with opioid receptors to affect other neurotransmission. And all drugs have that. And that's the A process. It's, it's what the drug does to the brain to produce the effect that we experience. But as we've said, the brain is, um, is listening and it's bi-directional. So it hears that message, it gets that A process, and it makes its own process to counteract the effective drug, to bring you back to a neutral state. And that is called the B process. So the B process is the brain's response to the drug or the brain's response to the A process caused by the drug. And it's always the exact opposite of the drug. So this is the reason that withdrawal from any drug is always exactly the opposite of what you were going for with the drug. So mm-hmm. if you're taking a drug to help you relax and unwind, and you do that regularly, you become tense and anxious. Mm. If you take a drug to help you sleep, you become insomniac. If you take a drug to be... To have some energy, you become lethargic. If you take a drug
0: to um, reduce suffering, you suffer. It's. And only- does this apply to any drug, including a, a cup of coffee, including um, you know, people take melatonin? Does this affect? Does this apply to absolutely everything we put into us?
1: Yeah. Well, it applies to any drug that works by changing the brain's activity, um, mm-hmm. and it definitely includes caffeine. So caffeine is uh, a drug that blocks a certain kind of adenosine receptor, another neurotransmitter family. And um, as a result of that, the adenosine receptors uh, increase, and that makes me tired. But melatonin is an interesting one. I don't want to get too far down the road, but melatonin doesn't affect the brain directly. What it it does is it... um, is a metabolite of serotonin, and um, so because it, and and it uh, it's a natural compound that uh, is high when we're sleeping. It actually doesn't produce um, to counteract this uh, effect. So melatonin doesn't have this for kind of a complicated reason. But you know, some people um, take tryptophan, which would help you sleep. Maybe you think that it might come after a big thanksgiving meal or something (laughs) and you can buy it over the counter and with tryptophan you do get this um reduction over time so tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin and serotonin is the precursor to melatonin if you take tryptophan over and over again you make less serotonin to make less melatonin but because melatonin is the end product um, of this pathway this natural pathway we don't
0: seem to adapt to that but um I will also avoid eating uh, Thanksgiving dinner every night to try to fall asleep. That's a good, that's a good plan. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, stasis seems like a good thing. If the A process and the B processes are interacting because they want to bring the body back to stasis, that seems good, right? But the B process also seems like a real bummer. Uh, drug use starts off as a lot of fun for some people, but after a while, you write that the best the addict can hope for is the transient alleviation of chronic despair. So are our brains basically both the recipients of drugs' pleasurable feelings, as well as the reason for why this pleasure eventually stops? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, they're re- they're responsible for the good feelings that we get from drugs, because drugs are changing the rate of what's already going on. That was that first law of uh, psychopharmacology. I think I skipped the rest of them. And the second one was that, um, which we kind of discussed indirectly, but it is that they um, all have side effects and they do that because they're um, affecting a whole range of neural communication. And then the third law, my favorite law, which is uh, the B process, essentially, that the brain counteracts Um, regular drug effects by producing the opposite state. And it is to, um, to restore stasis. And I think stasis is great for our survival because it ensures that we can respond to what's happening around us. But it is absolutely the bane of every addict because you're trying to get, you're trying to get away from your neutral state. You're trying to, you know, Exist in a kind of super elevated state, which is um, in a way saying that you are going to take enough drugs to outsmart your brain. And I think that we've shown through um, maybe our own families and neighbors, or at least the news, that we're not going to be able to uh, outsmart that. The brain's adaptive capacity is basically limitless. You know, somebody. Mm who's addicted to opiates can take 200 times a lethal dose in a naive person and not even get high. Hmm. So the drugs don't work at all. They only keep them from being miserable. And, and really most addicts who have had an uninterrupted supply for a while are no longer getting high at all. They're just not feeling miserable. And I think that's the state where they're in the stasis. Um, but the And it's, I guess, not so terrible until the supply does get interrupted. And Mm -hmm. in that case, they're really in a deep, um, you know, anti-drug or withdrawal or be processed state where um, all the effects that they were using for, they're experiencing the exact opposite. They can't sleep. They can't sit still. They can't relax. You know, they have diarrhea, Hmm. all of those things.
0: How long does it take to... Shift one stasis, then, to transform from a stasis where there is, where, where perhaps we could describe stasis as a sense of sobriety uh, without on t- intoxicant use, to a shifting level where stasis actually requires the drug. And I'm, I'm sure it's different for each substance, but is there a general rule of thumb for how long it takes to to reach that new point, that new level of stasis?
1: Well, um, great question. So the first thing is that. It's important, I think, to note that the first time you use the drug, the brain is already adapting. Wow. Um, so, you know, 20 minutes after your first opiate exposure, you're not going to ever kind of be quite as good because the brain learns so well and so quickly. Um, and it does depend on the type of drug. And, but more importantly, it depends on how much the cells are bathed in the drug and how many times they are withdrawn from that bathing and also the amount of drugs. So in general, the more you take and the more frequently you take it, um, the more uh, disrupted your homeostasis or your middle ground will be, the the bigger the B process will be. And also practice with withdrawing actually makes it worse. So for alcohol, for instance, we know that going through periods of deep intoxication like binge drinking and then withdrawing and binge drinking and then withdrawing and binge drinking and then withdrawing really teaches the brain well, um, mm. you know, how to adapt and creates, therefore, alcoholism or alcohol dependence. Um, so it, it's the good news is be, the brain can do it this way and it can also, you know, adapt the opposite way. But it does, it takes time in both directions.
0: Mm-hmm never enough spends some time going through the neurological effects of several specific drugs. And you define them, I think, in really, really extraordinary language that really stuck with me. Um, you write that alcohol is a pharmacological sledgehammer, uh, cocaine is a laser, and marijuana is a bucket of red paint, which are great descriptions. Um, why did you choose to write about these specific drugs? And, and how does the brain adapt to their use? What do you mean when you call it, when you say a pharmacological sledgehammer or a laser or a bucket of red paint?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I spent my career teaching undergraduates, and I really feel like um, a good way to understand things is by metaphor or analogy. But the drugs act so differently, and I think those three are ones that I personally know a lot about and also have studied a lot. So I was trying to describe, as you say, what is it that What's the A process from these drugs, and what's the how does the brain adapt? And the A process is for alcohol, kind of like a sledgehammer because the drug is so nonspecific. It's a tiny molecule. it goes through membranes really well, so it gets distributed throughout the brain. It doesn't like marijuana kind of gets stuck in fatty areas. Mm-hmm. That's not the case with alcohol. It really is um comfortable in water and goes across membranes well. Um, the way it produces drunkenness is something we're still figuring out, but it interacts with GABA neurotransmission by speeding it up. And GABA is a major break in the brain, so it's slowing everything down. So when it speeds up the brakes, that means it really slows activity down. Um, Alcohol also blocks uh, glutamate, and glutamate is the major gas pedal. So by blocking that, again, it's slowing things down. It interferes Mm with neuron to neuron communication in lots of different ways. So it has this, this sort of general ability to just um, screw up neural communication. And for that, I think it is like a sledgehammer. You know, Um, you, I, I think if you saw someone really intoxicated or someone who just got you know, a head injury, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And that's not the case with someone who's just taken cocaine or even marijuana or, or opiates. So those have more specific effects. Um, Cocaine is a laser. It does one specific thing at uh, one specific kind of uh, cell that's not even that much around to um, increase pleasure at the mesolimbic uh, circuit. The one I talked about, I'm sorry, the, um, the um, circuit from the, the mesolithic, um, the pathway. Yeah. I couldn't Mm -hmm. describe it. It works (laughs) to enhance dopamine and it really just enhances dopamine and norepinephrine, which makes us feel confident and secure and, and happy, you know, like excited. Um, Marijuana, I said, is a bucket of red paint. That was maybe the biggest reach for me to come up with something, but um, marijuana is so interesting to me because um, the drug acts all over the brain, kind of like alcohol, but it acts specifically, so not in a sort of a general way. It interacts at a particular kind of receptor. These are cannabinoid receptors, and their are cannabinoids. Um, those cannabinoid receptors exist like our opiate receptors exist to respond to natural cannabinoids like anandamide, for instance, which is a neurotransmitter we make that is pretty much um, ubiquitous. It's it's in practically every single synapse, and there are hmm. trillions of synapses in the brain. So the, the thing is all over, and um, it can be made all over, but when we smoke a bunch of THC, then it really does bathe the brain and activate all the cannabinoid receptors. And um, That has the effect, especially in a naive user who has a lot of cannabinoid receptors, of kind of turning up the gain on that synaptic transmission or that cell-to-cell communication so that things seem um, sort of highlighted or more important than they normally had. And that was an effect, an A-process effect that I adored, you know, because (laughs) the music was great and the food was great and the fun and the ideas and everything was so rich and interesting that um, that was because, you know, basically I was enhancing signaling sort of everywhere in a way, kind of letting my cells know that something uh, worth noting had happened. The problem in the B process for that uh, is that those receptors tend to, to go away. So the more you smoke, the fewer of those receptors you have. And so then you kind of have to smoke to find things interesting. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. not smoking, um, you know, you're in a withdrawal state, which is not like alcohol or opiate withdrawal, but still, for me, it was pretty um, unhappy
0: yeah and it's a very different view of uh cannabis use than is oftentimes found in popular discourse where this drug is compared to nicotine or alcohol and is considered so much safer but you write that we actually don't know too much neurologically about what care uh what, about what cannabis does in a moment when legalization initiatives are spreading nationwide and internationally. As a neuroscientist and expert in addiction, what advice would you give to legislators who are defining new marijuana laws?
1: Yeah, um well, there's a lot in that question. I guess, you know, we in the in 1985, we didn't think cocaine was addictive at all. <laughs> um and we really then we had the crack epidemic, and we realized, wow, this isn't just you know fun for yuppies. This is probably not so hot. Um, <laughs> and I think that time does reveal time, and scientific inquiry really help uncover what's actually going on. And we haven't had time for the scientific inquiry, and part of that is because of um, pretty uh, harsh regulation that. Slow down research, which I, I never think is good. I think it's always better to ask the questions and gather the data and develop an understanding than it is to try to slow that down, you know, at the beginning. Um, but as the research is coming in, it's, it's problematic. There's a lot of things to be worried about. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think legislators should consider is that there is an A process to marijuana, which does seem to reduce pain and um, help people sleep and maybe reduce anxiety in some people. In other people, it makes them more anxious. And in other people, it um, precipitates psychosis and perhaps schizophrenia. So it's a mixed bag. But hmm. you know, certainly there are some beneficial effects. But my hope for um, all legislation is that We look at not the acute effects, because this isn't how people use drugs, you know, once as needed, especially if the brain is going to adapt, but really the chronic effects, the B process effects. And there are no um, good, well-controlled, long-term studies looking at the efficacy of THC for treating things like anxiety and depression and pain. And my suspicion is that the long-term effects are going to be diminishing and the the side effects will be um, growing so that they won't be all as great as we hope they might be now. And I also think for legislators and everybody else, it's so critical to separate THC from cannabidiol. So cannabidiol and THC are both in the marijuana plant. Cannabidiol is not mind-altering. It's actually an antagonist of THC, so it it blocks THC's effects, and for that reason, breeders who are looking for recreational drugs um, want to get less cannabidiol and more THC, which makes it, you know, potentially more problematic if THC is, has got some problems, which it seems to. Um, but the cannabidol is maybe helpful. It's definitely helpful for a certain kind of childhood epilepsy that's been mm. a big problem. So, and I think since it's not mind altering, if I were a legislator, I would say put it over the counter. It make it available free, you know, so that we know what's in it. People can get it. They can t- try it. It's important for those consumers. I think to keep in mind that about. 60% of people will respond positively to a placebo. So you can <laughs> give a sugar pill for anything from varicose veins to knee pain to bad eyesight, and people will experience benefits, 60%. So, wow. you know, some of that may be um, placebo effect, and I think, you know, we need controlled studies, but what the heck, cannabidiol should be out there. Hmm. Now, and just to
0: clarify cannabidiol is probably better known to some of our listeners as CBD, correct? Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And yeah,
0: and so just just find a following up,
1: you know, I know on the internet and uh among people I meet at the dog park and stuff, there's a lot of uh, you know, well, if you have this percentage of this and that percentage of that, it's good for this and it's good for that, but I I would encourage everybody to look for the empirical research to support those claims and unfortunately there isn't much and i think it's coming i think we'll have it in 10 or 20 years it takes a while we understand much better but in the meantime you know maybe be a little skeptical
0: and i will definitely tell my three-year-old to wait until that research comes (laughs) in before he starts to experiment with any with any substances Um, Mm -hmm. One of the most remarkable uh, parts about Never Enough, I thought, was your discussion about uh, the brain's plasticity, both in generating addiction, but also in overcoming it. Are people with substance use disorders fated to be addicts forever? Mm-hmm.
1: That is a great question, Emily. Um, and when we don't, it's hard to prove that the answer would be yes. I, I think I give an analogy like, um, I don't think I can fly. You know, I think I'm still an addict. But the way that I would have to prove that would be to jump off the roof and die. You know, and then you would say, Oh no, you couldn't fly. And oh no, you know, she is still an addict because she had been clean for thirty years and then she decided just to do a little of this or that. And the next thing you know, she's, you know, hanging out on the street corners. So I think um, there's not a lot of evidence that most people who um, develop the kind of problems I had, which were sort of losing a lot just to pursue this kind of insane hunger, Um, can go backwards but there are there is evidence for some people growing out of it so young people who um, you know are kind of overdoing it in college and then they kind of wake up part of that might be that they have a biological um, resilience that maybe not everybody has and part of it might be that they stop using while their brains are still in that highly plastic state so between about um 13 and 25, we know that the more you use, the higher your risk for addiction because the brain is so so plastic. But also it's um maybe more amenable to recovery for the same Hmm. reason. So it might be that they grow out of it or that they somehow keep themselves from crossing some invisible line. I don't know what that is. Um, but I should just be clear that there's not a lot of evidence for people who have. Big problems, and then learn to um, be moderate users. There's many people who've tried and failed. Many more have tried and failed than who've tried and been successful.
0: Wow! <clears throat> Excuse me. I see your book as kind of an addiction studies sandwich. Uh, you, You start with your own story of addiction, and then you discuss addiction's biological and neurological drivers and the effects of specific drugs. And you close with a really fascinating discussion of some of the social motivators for drug misuse and a discussion of ways to combat the problem. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about those social motivators for drug misuse. What are these factors driving addiction as you see them?
1: Yeah, I I think I came to this, um, you know, kind of the long way. I really am somebody who uh, appreciates the biological or the mechanistic um, contributions to behaviors like addiction. So I was looking at peptides and molecules and, you know, things like that. Um, But partly because we've been so unsuccessful, frankly, in in solving anything um, I was forced to kind of take a step back and think, so what, what can be done? You know, are we, we're going to wait for the big breakthrough or is there something kind of right under our noses? And um, I'm very sensitive as somebody in recovery to the um, diminishing opportunities for interacting in a normal social world without messing with my pharmacology i think Hmm. that it is so much a part of our culture alcohol and now i guess weed and other things it's it's just much more normal i think to be intoxicated than to be sober and i i think that um that's something maybe we could look at because it's lonely. And I I think, you know, it was very hard for me in the beginning that I was in a halfway house, and then I was in sort of a protected environment, and then I went to school where I just kept my head in the books. But I think to, um, like, I've I've really noticed the, um, not only the marketing and the kind of, pushing of the advertising for using drugs. And I, I dread the day when that comes out for marijuana, as you said, in the beginning, it took me nine years to not want to smoke a joint, you know, and uh, (laughs) like, I think every day I wanted to get high. And so I don't know if I'd been able to sustain that if it'd been really all around me. So I think Mm. that's kind of some low hanging fruit. I mean, what we're giving two messages, we're saying, you know, oh, my gosh, these people are all dying. Isn't this terrible? What can we do? And on the other hand, we're just really embracing the idea that um, it's perfectly normal to be a little wasted all the time. And, and I, I think if you, if you're able to do that, I understand, you know, why you would want to, but if you're not, and it's not, you know, it's worth noting that my situation is not rare at all. It's probably mm. close to one in ten, or maybe uh, we now think maybe one in eight adults in the U.S. and in many other countries who are sort of like me, self-destructing with their drug use. So it's a it's a kind of incredible um, denial, collectively, or maybe even callousness that lets people kind of put that out of their minds. And I wonder. Um, you know, for social users, why that is. Um, mm. with otherwise, sensitive people who are thinking, you know, that's just too bad for them. And there's just so many, and it's it's actually growing. The problem is growing. So that's part of it. The advertising. Um, also, I think stress is just this boogeyman. You know, that is makes everything worse. It's sort of um, is a a variable in studying biology or the brain or any kind of system that that makes things get out of whack. And so I do think hmm. our, our, we're in a very stressful time. And, you know, if your way of dealing with the stress is to cope by medicating, and some of us can't medicate without killing ourselves, then it might be better to look at what are the factors that are making us
0: um, need to medicate, you know. Precisely. One in eight, that's a statistic I haven't heard before. And that is extraordinary and very troubling. And I I think you're completely on the mark when you say that it, it, it very clearly cannot be considered an individual problem and clearly is obviously much larger than that. But you write that the problem with this situation is that finding effective treatment for addiction is, is what you call the holy grail of medicine. So I'd like to know how you recovered. You talked a little bit about it, but I'd like to know more. And, and how do we become Indiana Jones? How do we find the holy, How do we find the holy grail? And are there any effective treatments for addiction currently available?
1: that is such a funny um analogy because i almost think i did it the exact opposite of indiana jones you know who doing these <laughs> great leaps and running fast and everything i kind of uh when i ended up in treatment and saw without drugs in my system so i could see a little bit more clearly what a an unbelievable mess i had made of my life i mean everything was either everything was compromised, if not totally lost. So as I Mm. I had no self-respect, I would kicked out of these schools. I had, I mean, it was just, everything was empty. I was sort of like a shell. Um, When I saw that, I, I kind of gave up the um, false delusion really that I was able to control my using and that I was going to you know tomorrow would be different than it was today, mm. and i I took advice, so unlike Indiana, I sort of sat still and tried to open be open minded enough to learn, and everything they told me in treatment sounded like complete garbage. I thought it was <laughs> the worst idea ever you know um but I didn't have any other strategies, and I was convinced you know I wouldn't live long if I didn't try it, and so i I took advice. I relied on a lot of people. I availed myself of every single tool I could. So yoga and Quaker meetings and therapy and rolfing and mountain climbing and, uh, you know, a lot of support groups. So I I think it was a long haul. And, you know, the book is definitely not about recovery because I that's not what I studied. Um, I wanted to fix it, not you know, I didn't really, I thought recovery was kind of the booby prize, but I, um, I only am an expert in my own recovery, which has been, um, uh, sort of a daily practice of, um, not picking up and, and asking for help, I guess.
0: That's extraordinary. And you'd still consider yourself in recovery, right? That was the term that you used earlier in this discussion.
1: Yeah, I do. And I think it's because I'm a scientist really. I I uh I I think that I you know, it might be. I'm I'm pretty open-minded. It might be that I'm I'm somehow cured from this time and that I could regularly, you know, or see here I go again. I could every occasion, you know, once in a while do something. But even now, it's not what I want. You know, someone will say, don't you want just a glass of wine? Can't you just have a glass of wine? Or this is a special drink, you know, this blah, blah, blah. And I think, you know, get out of my way. I would like the bottle. And I don't, <laughs> I don't mean, I think that sounds pathetic. I, I really do. It does to me. But it's the truth. Like, I, my, I don't want to taste the wine. I want to be drunk.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't
1: want to... um just smoke weed at the MoMA, you know, I want, I want to enhance every day. Mm. And, I, and I because my brain would adapt very quickly, and it probably already learned all the tricks it needs to do that, so it would be even more quickly, I have no um, illusion that I would, would be very much different. I think I'm the same person. And it's unfortunate I'm this way. But you know, I also think my, um, my tendency to excess has been a strength, you know, not with drug use but with graduate school or writing grants or um, you know personal goals so
0: um, oh, absolutely, yeah, you've really put it towards good use i mean you you completely turned it around, and I've read a lot of books on addiction. this is a field I'm very familiar with, but I've never come across one quite like yours that features both diagrams of the brain's mesolimbic pathway, as well as illustrations of the Queen of Hearts from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. I I just loved that. Was it important to you to make neuroscience both accessible and very personal in this book?
1: Yes, um, it was. It was funny because the original idea was to mix it. When I started writing, honestly, it was much easier to write about the science than it was about myself. And um, that had to sort of be pulled from me. And that was, even though that was my original intent, I think in theory it was easier than actually in practice. And about probably a month or two before the book came out, I was kind of in a panic. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is way too much of me. Um, and then I consoled myself by thinking, well, no one will probably read the book anyway. So it's fine <laughs> because nobody, you know, people don't usually read the stuff I I mean, a few people, but not many. Um, But I think that my experience is, in a way, very typical. And so the fact that addicts can relate the feelings and the thoughts and the compulsions that I had um, with the underlying neurochemistry is um, maybe – educational so that they can see it. and my hope is really that the, those principles those scientific principles which are not you know just my ideas these are really a synthesis of the field that was mm. um you know 50 years of research is sort of accurately represented there it's not inclusive obviously but it kind of gets the the heart out of it um hmm. i think it it should be useful and I, and you know often there's a disconnect between scientists who are really working hard to help and um and it reaching or translating down to people's lives and so um i'm i'm really i mean if if that happens as a result of sharing my personal experience then it will have definitely been worth it
0: well, it certainly worked for me. I haven't taken a science class since 11th grade in high school, but I feel like I learned a lot from your book, and I really want to thank you for writing it. Um, so, Judy, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but before we let you go, I'd love to know what your next project will be. What are you planning on working on next?
1: Well, I I do have um, uh, two research students, two master's students who are working with me in the lab, and I'm continuing on my basic science, looking at stress and sex differences in uh, binge drinking and also an in initial reward from drugs like uh, opiates and um, benzodiazepines like Xanax. So I have a whole bunch of research projects, but I'm, I'm more and more uh, asked about the um, teenage plasticity and that sort of vulnerable period for developing mm. an addiction and maybe recovery. So I'm considering, uh, um, I've got some notes and I'm um, Thinking about trying to elaborate a little bit more on that, since that's important, and a personal area of interest to me and the field actually now is is sex differences. So we kind of ignored sex differences, you know, differences between men and women in in the causes and the consequences of drug use, but we're now seeing that there are substantial differences, and um, it might be fun to try to um, you know learn more about that, and then uh, also translate some of that but you know i have to live long enough to get all this done so we'll see
0: (laughs) well that all sounds awesome and as a as a parent of a child i look forward to your research on teenage brains, so i can just hand him your book and say read this make your own decisions Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but i want to thank you so much for being on this show today i really enjoyed it thank you i did too